Let's take our Bible tonight, make our way to Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to finish out chapter 7 tonight. We're going to begin in verse 19, and we'll come down through verse number 29. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 19, down through verse 29. I've titled the message, Pursuing Wisdom in a Crooked World. Pursuing Wisdom in a Crooked World. And there's a lot of things we can glean within this passage And I pray that um, it will be a benefit to us, help us to grow, help us to see some things and learn, uh, but most importantly, to apply it to our life, Uh, because wisdom is more than just knowledge, isn't it? It's the right application of knowledge. It is the uh, impact it makes on our life and how it affects us. And so uh, my prayer is that we we can glean some things from this. Ecclesiastes 7, 19 through 29, let's read the text together. It says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something bitter, more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We think about the big picture, really, of Ecclesiastes. What is the big picture? It is that life in this sin-cursed world really is beyond our control. It is full of crookedness, and ultimately, everything without God is vanity. Vanity of vanities, the preacher says over and over throughout the book. The world is full of things that are hard to explain, hard to endure, things that uh, are hard to uh, go through. We think about how loved ones become sick, and then they die, right? Uh, Tragedy strikes it. Unexpected times. Solomon has pointed out that there's injustice and oppression, and it seems like the wicked prevails while the righteous suffers. He looked at that in the last text, didn't he? He brought that out. Life seems to be cut short for some. We could go on and on about the hard realities of life under the sun that Solomon has made clear to us, but grasping the big picture is important for us to make the proper applications for life in this world. And by seeing the big picture under the sun, we can uh, respond in a couple ways. The first way we might respond is simply by trying to escape reality and maybe numb ourselves to what happens in the world and what we experience. I don't know if this is a true portrayal or not, but I used to watch cartoons, and one of the cartoons would have this ostrich, and anytime trouble would come, he would shove his head down in the sand, you know, as if, as long as he doesn't see it, then it's just not there. But... Hiding or trying to escape reality doesn't change reality, does it? So many people do that in this world. Many people try to distract themselves from the hard realities of life. They give themselves maybe to partying as hard as they can, 
drinking themselves into forgetfulness, keeping their minds maybe only in the past uh, when they think things were better, kind of like what Solomon brought out about nostalgia, that it's not good to live in the past. So that's one option. We can try to escape reality. Or there's a second option. We can face the reality of the sin curse, life in the sin-cursed world and recognize that we need wisdom, wisdom of God to live life rightly and fear of God to fulfill His purpose that He's given to us. So that's really what the undergirding principle here is. So through this, through this Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon started the passage with wise words for life. Verse 1 down through 12, that's what we looked at. Just basic proverbial principles, wisdom for life. He brings out these things. We looked at last week in verse 13 through 18. He pointed out the reality that we don't have any control over things under the sun. Uh, who can make straight what God's made crooked? There's only one person who is sovereignly in charge, and it's the Creator. It's the one who created all things and governs all things by His providence. And so fearing God in the midst of this crooked world and trusting Him, that's really the wisest way to live in this world. And so now Solomon continues on this thread of wisdom, and he brings out some wise insights for life, while at the same time making it clear that even the wisest, they are still fallen in their sin and don't have it all together. And so let's look at uh, the, the notes here tonight and the text together. Uh, two, two overall headings I've broke down the passage into, and we'll look at the subpoints that come with it. But notice with me, number one tonight, we see Solomon's practical uses of wisdom. He's going to bring out just some practical insights, practical things uh, that are good for us to apply. Practical uses of wisdom. And here's the first one. Wisdom is stronger than many rulers combined. Wisdom is stronger than many rulers or those in a council combined. Now, he's made plain a few times in the book already the value of wisdom, hasn't he? We saw it in this chapter. You go back to verse number 12 and he shows us how wisdom is a means of protection. Wisdom is a means of security and safety. That's what wisdom brings. We read in Proverbs, which most of them also written by Solomon, he shows us the value of wisdom, that really you can't put a price tag on it. It's worth more than all of the earthly treasure and things that you could desire in this world. He says in Proverbs 8, 11 through, or 10 through 11, he says, Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Now, that, that puts a great emphasis on the value of wisdom. People desire a lot of things in this world, but he says everything you could desire in this world, it doesn't even compare to wisdom's price tag. So now he says wisdom is strength in verse 19. Wisdom is strength. Now, who doesn't want to be strong or have strength in life, right? Strength is a desired attribute or characteristic. Individual people, we, as individual people, we want to be strong, right? We like to be strong physically, mentally. Uh, individuals through the world, they want to be strong. We think about maybe nations. Nations want to be strong uh, militarily and economically. Strength is something to be desired by all people. But here's what he brings out is that the true strength that we need is found in wisdom. Verse 19, he says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Now, it's not 100% clear what he means by the ten rulers who are in a city. It could refer to a number of 
a number that was particular to a city or council in his day and time, or it could be a number that alludes to just a a, a strong council, a, a, a full and complete council uh, within a, uh, a, a nation or a city or, or something of that nature. So what, what you find there is that wisdom and the fear of God, he's saying, is greater in one man than the collective wisdom of a group of experienced leaders or council people. I would say for a modern-day application, one wise man is stronger than all of the United States Congress who can't tell up from down or the difference between a man and a woman. Make sense? Right? It doesn't matter how many there are in the leadership, there is a lot of foolishness among the leadership, isn't there? Uh, And so we can apply that to various avenues. I use that because that's an easy example. But uh, there's other examples you could use. So, So though the council may be supposedly the strongest in the world, speaking of our Congress, there's a lot of foolishness that we see within them. And so he's pointing out that one wise man is better than the many foolish who appear to be strong. He reiterates kind of a similar principle in Proverbs 21, 22. He says, a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. So the central point here, wisdom gives strength to the wise. Wisdom gives strength to the wise. One may be a poor outcast to society and the higher powers, but if he has wisdom, he has more strength than they do. By wisdom, he may bring victory to save the people. And as you think about that, does that describe anyone within the Scriptures? Absolutely it does. Guess who it describes? It describes Jesus Christ. It describes Jesus himself. You see, Jesus is the wisest of men. His wisdom exceeded that of Solomon's, by the way. Solomon was great from an earthly, mortal man's standpoint. But Jesus, he is wisdom. He's not, he doesn't just have wisdom. He, he is wisdom. And so we think about Jesus, the wisest man, who was despised by the council of the Israelites, the Jewish leaders. Christ in his perfect wisdom brought salvation to his people, not in the way that they expected. He's the one that brought victory. And the beauty of Scripture to me is that throughout all the pages of Scripture, you're going to see Christ in one way or another because he's the thread woven through all of it. Scripture takes us to Christ. It takes us to Jesus. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He tells the Corinthians about their salvation and about how they came to be in Christ. And he says, because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. This is what Jesus is. He is wisdom from God to us. He's also our righteousness. He's also our sanctification and our redemption. And so the point that you can glean from this and the broader picture from Solomon and the whole of the Bible is that true wisdom is going to be found first in Jesus because he is wisdom. Without Jesus, you're really not going to have true wisdom that God designs for us to have or wants us to have. Paul said this about Jesus in Colossians 2, 3. He said, "...of him in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." That's in Jesus. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom in knowledge. And so we need wisdom. We need wisdom to live rightly in this crooked world. And really, when you look at the big picture, it is only a fool who fails to see and desire wisdom for the strength and security that it actually brings to our life and to our souls. So that's the first practical implication. Wisdom is stronger than many rulers of a city. But notice with me letter B this evening. I about said morning. I better watch myself. 
Notice letter B that sin permeates every person, even the wise. Sin permeates every person, even the wise. And what you find here is so plain, so so foundational to so much other doctrine in the Scriptures. He makes sure to remind his audience that though one may have wisdom and strength from that wisdom, that doesn't fix everything for them in life, does it? One may be a Christian and have great wisdom from God, but that still doesn't fix everything in life. It gives them the ability to live life as they're supposed to live it, but it still doesn't fix or erase really the main problem in life. Now, excluding Jesus, who alone was sinless, Solomon says of everyone else in verse 20, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I mean, that's, that's the universal principle for all of humanity. There is not a righteous man on earth who does, who does good and never sins. This verse is probably one of the most concise descriptions of mankind's depravity in the Old Testament. And Charles Bridges rightly reminds us here in his commentary, he says, we must not overlook this humbling testimony to the universal and total corruption of the whole race of man. This, this important statement lies at the foundation of all right views of truth. And that's what Solomon's bringing this out for. Because to have the right perspective of even the world in which we live in, you have to understand what he's saying right here in verse 20. All the crookedness, all of the, the, the evil, all of the, uh, 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 the injustice and the oppression and suffering and death and sickness, all of it that happens in life from the sun, it comes back to this issue right here. That there is not one who is righteous on earth. Not one who does good. Not one who never sins. So in this one verse, he addresses the sinful nature of mankind. As he says, there's, none right, there's not a righteous man on earth. That truth is repeated over and over through the text of Scripture. Starting with his own father, David. David was Solomon's father, right? David, I'm sure, taught him well. David said in Psalm 53, verse 2 through 3, he said, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there was any who understood, who seek after God. And what's the conclusion? They have all fallen away. They have become corrupt. There's none who does good, even one. Not even one. So God looks down from heaven. What's he see in mankind? Not one. Not one who is righteous. That's a staggering statement. The truth is repeated by Paul in the, Old, in the New Testament. When he said to the Romans in Romans 3, 10, and 11, he says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This is fallen man's condition. This is the condition of every person in the world. His sinful nature makes him unrighteous in who he is. But I think you'll notice something else, too, about his sinful nature, what it brings out of him. There's two ways in which we sin or reveal our sinful nature. And notice this with me. The first thing we see is that there's sinful acts of omission, meaning things that we should do that we don't do or not possible for us to do. You notice that he says there's none who does good. Shouldn't we do good? Yes, we should do good, right? Man should do good. But he says there's none who does good. That's the sinful acts of omission. We're called to live good, but we can't live good and we don't live good because of our sinful nature that we have. Our nature prohibits us from that and, and causes us to live in an unrighteous way. Now, what's the general idea that most of humanity thinks about themselves regarding this, about 
being good, right? What's the general idea with this? Most people think that what? They're good. Most people think they are good. Many think this way because they have their own standard of what they think is good before God. They don't quite understand the standard of God. But when you get down to the nitty-gritty and you start asking people questions about goodness and what goodness actually is, it's soon apparent that, no, they're not as good as they think they are. Here's what, here's what Isaiah says, okay? Isaiah says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. You see, this is one reason that you and I cannot attain our own salvation. God says even the righteous or the good things that we think we do, He says they are as a polluted garment. They are as a filthy rag. We all have faded like a leaf with our iniquities. Like the wind, they take us away. And so because of our inherent sinful nature, we're, we're really incapable of doing good in the eyes of God because we're sinful. And only when we become a Christian are we able to do good in this world because of Christ Himself who lives in us. And so we as Christians, we're accountable to do good. James tells us this in James 4.17. This is an application from a Christian perspective. He says, so whosoever or whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, what does he say about that? For him it is sin. Failing to do what is right, when you know to do what is right, that's omission, not doing what you should do. He says it's sinful. So Solomon is bringing this out in a broad way. But notice secondly also with this that we see not only sinful acts of omission, things we should do that we don't do, we see sinful acts of commission, those sins that we directly do, what we would call transgressions. Transgressions. Now, what exactly is transgression? We've been going through Bible catechisms with Jubilee and David, and her ears perked up. She knows what this is about. What is transgression? Well, the basic answer is that transgression is breaking the law of God. We're disobeying the law of God. That's the basic answer. And this is laid out for us in 1 John 3, 4. John says this, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And notice what he says, sin is lawlessness or transgression or breaking the law of God. And this is what you and I do without any training, without any help from outside sources. We just naturally do it. You don't have to teach a kid how to lie or or cheat, or steal, or misbehave. He just naturally do, does it. Same for adults. All of us. We naturally break the law of God. And, and so that's the simple definition. All people do it. Again, God says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what Solomon's saying here is a universal truth for everyone, including those that are wise and have wisdom. So regardless of whether a person has wisdom or not, They are still fallen sinful creatures, and true wisdom helps us recognize this. True wisdom helps us see who we really are in this world. So that's the practical application for that verse. Number three, or letter C, rather. Notice with me this next point that he makes in this practical portion of wisdom. Be careful what you hear and take to heart. Be careful what you hear and take to heart. 
And you're going to find this wrapped up in verse 21 and in verse 22. Notice that he says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Now, who here has ever engaged in a little practice called eavesdropping? Anybody? Eavesdropping. Listening in. We're probably all guilty of this, right? Our ears easily tune in to words being said that are not directly to us, and we're not involved in the conversation, but nevertheless, we're taking it in, right? We're taking it in. Well, why do we do that? Well, we're naturally nosy people, aren't we? <laughs> we like to gather information. We want to know what so-and-so is saying, what's going on, what's the latest news. I was an excellent eavesdropper growing up. I would sometimes sit upstairs, sometimes at the top of the stairs, and try to listen in on mom and dad and what they were saying. What are they talking about? Sometimes it was some, some scary stuff. I didn't want to, I wanted, I didn't, I wanted to go to bed, right? <laughs> Especially if it involved how they're going to start disciplining uh, Megan and I. Like, ah, we need to be better because I would uh, tune in if my name brought up. But then there's times that they'd be talking about maybe something fun or exciting they were going to do with us. And, and so I would uh, figure out what we were going to do ahead of time because I was listening in. I wasn't really surprised. I've, I've always been someone really hard to surprise. Even if you try to throw me a surprise party or something, I pick up on things, and I'm eavesdropping on people and figuring it out, right? And, and so that's just kind of how I've always been. And uh, Jubilee gets it on us. She does the same thing. Bethany and I will be talking in the other room about, well, let's go to the playground this day, or we'll go to a movie this day for the kids, and we'll say, hey, kids, guess what we're going to do? And guess what she'll say? We're going to the playground. How'd you know that? I heard you. <laughs> That's what she says. And, and so I guess I'm reaping the, <laughs> a little bit of what I did in my own childhood, right? Mom used to say I had elephant ears. I don't know if they can hear well, but they have big ears. So that's why she said I had elephant ears. But you, you think about this point of what Solomon's making. We should make it a point not to eavesdrop on conversations not directed at us. Why? We might hear something we weren't meant to hear or might not really like hearing. Because what we might hear might be about us. Might be about us. In this context, he's talking about servants who would be in the house of the person. So a servant might be talking to somebody else about their master, grumbling or whatever. Master's listening and they're hearing their servant talk about them, right? So, so you look at this. We might hear something we're, we weren't meant to hear. And it might not be so good because it might be about us. Beyond eavesdropping, there's times when we might be told directly something that doesn't sit well with our hearts. How often has division and strife happened through this kind of activity? Eavesdropping on someone who's saying things and then going off and being mad about it, or maybe somebody saying something to someone else and, and, and it doesn't sit well, and so they're mad about it, it's really cut to their heart, so they're holding on to it, they can even get bitter about it. You know, you know James really warns about the danger of the tongue in James 3. I'm not going to go through all of that. You go read that whole passage, but in short... He says in James 3, 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. You think about how small and insignificant our tongue is, right, compared to all our other muscles in the body, yet it does so much and can do so much with its words. So Solomon says here, Do not take to heart... All the things that people say. Why is that? Well, some things you hear might not be really true. Some things that are said, maybe even about you, they might be inaccurate, might be vindictive, 
might be because this person's just ruffled about something and they're just going to go on and spill, spill whatever they think, right? Whatever comes to their mind. We may he- what we may hear is untrue gossip. So, in other words, you can't believe everything you hear. You can't believe everything you hear, even if it's about you. You also can't believe everything you hear about others, what they're saying to you about others. Here's one example. David said to King Saul in 1 Samuel 24, 9, he said, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Did David seek the harm of Saul? No. But what was coming into the ears of Saul? David wants to hurt you. Now, Saul's already jealous of David because God's anointed him king, and he wants David gone. But, man, this just fuels the fire, right? People take getting in his ear saying, David wants to hurt you, and it wasn't true. David had opportunity to hurt Saul plenty of times, but showed him mercy. This is the result. You see, these false words stirred up the fire. And this really is the problem with gossip and talking about others negatively. If, you're passing, if what you're passing along isn't truly accurate, you are skewing that person's reputation into the mind of the person you are telling. Because that person may not know the truth about what you are saying, and what you're saying may not be accurate. This is why we have to be so careful about our tongues. So if we hear something about us from someone else or about someone else, in other words, Solomon's saying, don't let that harbor in your heart. Don't let it bug you. Because often our tendency, if someone has said something, we've heard something negative about us, what do we tend to do? We tend to hold on to that, don't we? But Solomon's saying, don't take it to heart. Don't hold on to it. Don't take it to heart. And why is that? Well, verse 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. In other words, you've probably been this person on the other side doing the talking. Your heart knows this. There's been times maybe you've vented about someone in an inappropriate way or you've exaggerated the details. There's been times when you merely passed along something you heard that was not confirmed to be true. It's just an assumption. There's been times you've been on the other end of this. So that's why Solomon says, don't take it to heart. Chances are, it might not be true. And so wisdom is greatly needed for this. We need to be careful in what we hear, what we take to heart and what we hear, and what we're saying. So we need to be careful on both ends. Wisdom is what we need. Notice with me letter D. We're going to jump down to verse 26 because it falls more to the practical application here, um, but you'll see how it flows in the remaining of the context too. But verse 26, we see something else. Practical. In the realm of wisdom, some people, we need to be aware of this, some people can be snares to our life or traps to our life. In verse 26, you notice that he says here, in the Solomon's pursuit of wisdom and examining all things, he says, and I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Now, we know what snares are, right? Snares are traps. Nets are traps. Fetters are like handcuffs or uh, or, or metal chains around your leg, right? Well, what, what's Solomon saying here? There are certain women, or even men for that matter, that are traps and handcuffs to a person's life. What kind of women and men might these be? These kinds of people are ungodly people, foolish people who influence or trap your life in the way of fools. Now, As you look at Solomon's language here regarding the dangerous woman of bondage, 
It resembles the same warnings that he gives in Proverbs chapter 5 and 7. Go read Proverbs 5 and 7 later and read about the specific and lengthy warning he gives to his son about the seductive, evil woman. And the way to avoid her is through what? Wisdom. Wisdom. That's what he's bringing out. In short, just to give you a, a summary verse, Proverbs 7, 5, coming out of that text, he says, son, get wisdom. Why? To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Throughout that chapter, or maybe it's chapter 5, he describes a, a young man who doesn't have wisdom, doesn't have any sense, and he goes walking through the town, and there at the street corner is this seductive woman. and She lures him in with her words and her beauty and the fragrance that she's wearing and, and, and the temptation that it's just us and, and lures him away. And he doesn't have any wisdom. He doesn't have any sense. So what's he do? He follows her, goes to her home. And Solomon goes on to say, he goes like an ox to the slaughter. He does not know that the dead are there. And so this is the kind of woman and really any ungodly person we might put in a broader application that Solomon has in mind. This person who can in, 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 put someone in bondage really by their influence. Now we, we think of, uh, of people even in the scriptures that we might see where this kind of a person brought great damage to their life. Can we think of an example of someone who really was taken by women and it turned out to his own destruction? Who is someone that comes to mind? I'll give you a hint. He was really, really strong. Samson. Samson was given the gift of strength by God, right? But he had a weakness. His weakness was women. And that's a weakness for a lot of men today, right? In this sexualized culture. It's something you have to be extra on guard about. But his weakness was women. How much better would Samson have been off without Delilah? The evil woman who tricked him into finding out the source of his strength and then cutting his hair led to his captivity, ultimately to him, his eyes being plucked out of his head and his strength gone and being killed with the Philistines. That is what Solomon's warning about. It is more bitter than death to be taken captive by such a person. Solomon himself understood this great danger, didn't he? What brought the devastation to Solomon's life throughout his later years? The women. The women he went after. What kind of women were they? They were good, godly Jews, weren't they? They were godless, pagan women who forced, not forced him, but lured him after false gods and false idols. Solomon says regarding this, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. He who pleases God. In other words, someone who is, whose heart is set on pleasing God does not, he escapes her. Do we have an example of someone who, who is in that position? A man who was tempted by such a woman, but escaped her because he sought to please God. His name, and I really like, I really love his name, okay? Joseph. Joseph, right? What a great example he was of a man who escaped and turned away from such a woman. He's, he's there in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife casts his eyes on Joseph. And then day after day, what's she do? She puts on her best attire and, and makeup and makes herself all dolled up and does everything she can uh, to get Joseph's attention. Why? She's demanding, lie with me. 
I want to have you, Joseph. And I love Joseph's response. I love it. In Genesis chapter 38, verse 8 and 9, here's what he says. He refused and said to the master, his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. And here's this great question. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's his view. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, Joseph had the wisdom to recognize the truth about what was really happening. The appeal of this this sexual interaction has a temporary and powerfully seductive uh, of course in the, in the moment, right? But he saw the bigger picture. He knew what it actually was because he had wisdom. And by faith, he sought to avoid that temptation. He ran from that temptation. He saw it as a road to bondage and destruction. This is what Solomon's bringing out. It's, it's a point we all need. We must not let wickedness or wicked people grab hold of our life, no matter what form it may come in. We need to seek to please God instead and avoid all the pleasures that this crooked world offers. We need wisdom for that. So that brings me to number two tonight, the second half. We see Solomon's uh, practical use of wisdom. These are some very practical things he's brought out. But notice with me Solomon's pursuit of ultimate wisdom. Solomon's pursuit of ultimate wisdom. I want to point out a few things here that I think are good for us to note. Wisdom, <clears throat> wisdom was elusive for Solomon. Wisdom was elusive for Solomon. What does that mean? It means Solomon could not completely attain unto wisdom. Solomon could not completely attain unto ultimate wisdom. I'm going to use it in that fashion. You continue through this text, verse 23 through verse 25 is where we see this. You notice with me in this verse. These verses, he says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Then he gives this introduction, this is what we just looked at in verse 26. But notice in verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another. I think I skipped a verse. I did. I'm in verse 23. I have the wrong reference. Verse 23, down through verse 25. I think I started in verse 25. Let me restart. Bear with me. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. That's better. That fits better with what I was trying to get across. That was the verse. That was the passage. But notice this. Solomon says all of this that he's saying, he's tested by wisdom. Because he is a wise man, doesn't he? He has wisdom by the gift of God. We all know how wise Solomon was by that gift. We're thankful for his wisdom that he's given to us in the inspired scriptures. Proverbs, what we read in Ecclesiastes. But even Solomon was not perfect in his wisdom, was he? He was not perfect in his wisdom. He did not possess ultimate wisdom or the fullness of what wisdom truly is. You notice he says in verse 23, I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. It was far from me. How can that be? 
Solomon's wise already, right? You understand what he's referencing here. He is seeking the fullness of wisdom, but that was not attainable for him. Solomon here recognizes his own limitations regarding wisdom. He says in verse 24, that which has been is far off, deep, very deep, who can find it out? So when Solomon says that which has been, he's referring to wisdom. That which has been, even before him, is very deep. It's deep, very deep. Who can find it out, right? That's what he's bringing out. And so that which has been is is the wisdom and its intricate usage in all of creation and God's uh, decrees and what he's ordained. You see, wisdom precedes Solomon and even creation itself because wisdom, wisdom is of the eternal God himself. And here's what you find in Proverbs chapter 8. And he, he brings this out in probably more detail, this one statement. That which has been is very deep. All of chapter 8 really reveals from a first-person viewpoint wisdom speaking. And here's what he says in Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. Let me just read this to you. This is from the first-person angle of wisdom, as if wisdom is speaking, okay? And he says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. What's wisdom saying? He's saying wisdom is of God. God possessed wisdom in the very beginning before ever anything was created. You know why? Because wisdom flows from the one who is all wise. God's wisdom is ultimate. God's wisdom is infinite. It is beyond our a possibility of attaining. And that's really what Solomon is bringing out with this. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his work. All that has been created and ordained in this world is done through the infinite wisdom of the Almighty. So to attain the very essence of ultimate wisdom would be to attain the same level of God's wisdom, which is not possible for man, even Solomon one who is gifted with wisdom in this world. Here's what God says in Isaiah chapter 55, 8 and 9. He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's not even possible to measure how high the heavens are above the earth. That's the distance between God's thoughts and our thoughts, His wisdom and our wisdom. Paul says it this way in such a glorious doxology. Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. You see, trying to grasp 
the ultimate and complete essence of wisdom is like trying to fill a cup with the entire ocean. It can't be done. Only God has ultimate wisdom. This is part of his divine attributes. He is all-wise. And so what we learn from this is that like Solomon, we should pursue wisdom while understanding we are limited. We are limited when it comes to wisdom. Verse 25, Solomon's realization of the limits of wisdom causes him to ponder further the scheme of things or the explanation of things in life under the sun, the character of mankind in the world. And that's what led him to verse 26. He says, I see this bitter thing when people are taken by uh, someone, someone who brings bondage on them, sinful, ungodly people. So he, he sees that wisdom, it is an elusive thing. We can't, we can't attain the fullness of it, but we can have wisdom that God can give us. And here's what else he points out. He shows us that wisdom is a rare possession among people. That's the second point. Wisdom, letter B, is elusive for everyone. <laughs> Not just Solomon, but everyone. You see, see, Solomon points out the universal problem of mankind lacking wisdom. In verse 27 and 28, he says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul sought repeatedly, I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, at first glance, that might seem like a puzzling kind of a passage. That's understandable. I had to do some digging on it myself. He says, one man among a thousand he has found. What's he mean by this? Out of a thousand men, he found one that he could see had some wisdom that he could understand. He says, but a woman among these I have not found. Now, at first glance, someone might think that Solomon was being sexist or unfair, right, between men and women, but that's, that's not the case. That's not what he's trying to say. The point here is the main message being communicated. He's making the point that wisdom is rare among humanity, among both men and women. It's a rare commodity. It's a rare virtue, if you want to say it that way. Say, well, why does he give the different number for men than women? Well, here's a few different here's a few different ways one might interpret this that I've read about. One, I think this is very very probable. Solomon could be using hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? It's an exaggerated type of statement to get attention to make a point. Right? He showed, to show the seriousness of an issue. Jesus taught in this way a lot. For example, Matthew 18, 9, he says, if your, eye, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hellfire, right? Jesus is not saying literally cut out your eye. If that was the case, we'd all be blind. We all sin with our eyes. He's using that as an exaggerated statement to show the seriousness of sin. Cut off that which makes you sin. Cut it out of your life. You don't need to have it. So this hyperbole may be what Solomon's doing here. The second interpretation I found, he, he could be referencing the seductive woman in verse 26. Among those types of women, there's not any that are wise. <laughs> None. Those kind of seductive women, they are all fools. Thirdly, he could be speaking from his own personal experience, literally referring to his own wives and concubines. Do you remember how many women Solomon had in his life? One, two, three, four, fifty, hundred. Solomon had a thousand women in his life. Way too many. I can barely handle one. I can't imagine five, seven hundred. I'm kidding, Bethany. She's watching. 
First, first Kings 11.3, Solomon, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. That's 1,000. That's the same number he uses here about the men's search, and he says, among these also. And what those women do for him? Nehemiah recalls their foolish influence on him. Nehemiah 13.26, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. So Solomon may be referencing his own experience, that even among all the women he knew, those thousand women, he didn't find one of them that were wise. Regardless of which interpretation you might take with this verse, the point is the same. Most people, men and women in this world, do not have wisdom as Solomon has examined them. And the same is true in our day, right? Our world is full, our crooked world is full of sinful fools. That's what you see. We see it in people, in our lives, in our community, in our nation, in our world. And this leads him to the overall conclusion for all of this. Bear with me. I know this is a little longer. I'm trying to get through. Letter C. I want you to see this, that wisdom begins with the foundation of truth. The foundation of truth. This really is the fundamental foundation of why we need wisdom and why there's such a lack of wisdom. And it's in verse 29. He says, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. That sums up the whole problem, everything in the world. The problem in this world is us, it is mankind, because of sin. You notice, how did God create man? He made man upright. And let me read to you, just by way of remembrance, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, for a moment, down through verse 31, if you'll follow there with me real quick, it says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves in the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And look at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. Very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the sixth day. So at the end of the sixth day, God sees everything he's made, including man, and he says, it is very good. Very good. Now, you know when God says something's very good, it really is good, right? When we say something's good, we might say it's okay, but... When something's very good in God's eyes, he said, it's good. It's very good. And that's what Solomon's bringing out about man. He made man upright. He wasn't neutral. He was upright. What's that mean? It means that man was made upright, but he still had the ability to mess it all up. And that's exactly what he did. He has sought out many schemes. Mankind decided to go his own way instead of God's way. The temptation in the Garden of Eden enticed man into a path that seemed like it was the right path, but it was wrong, at least from their perspective. Solomon said in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. Seems right. So, so the choice man made to rebel against God brought the curse of sin upon himself and creation, and this is the reason... 
Solomon sees in life under the sun all the vanity, all the corruption, all the lack of wisdom in the world. It's all due to the sin of mankind. And so why is this verse foundational for us to have wisdom? Because for us to have true wisdom, we have to see the true problem with our lives in the world. The problem is us. In 1908, the Times newspaper asked a few authors to contribute on the topic of what's wrong with the world. G.K. Chesterton submitted the briefest response, and he wrote, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton said, I am. And that's the truth about humanity. We are. And so the only way to possess the wisdom Solomon emphasizes and the Scripture emphasizes is through seeing the truth as it is, which brings us to the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Solomon says, and the fear of the Lord is only truly known by way of the redemptive work of Christ for sinners. You see, we must see our own sinfulness against God, our need of redemption, and Christ's accomplishment of redemption for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8 tells us this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, without Christ we will have no true wisdom. Without recognition of sin in our life and in the world, we will not have the true wisdom we need to live life in this world. So this is how we see God's design. We need redemption. With redemption comes wisdom to live life as we ought to live it, pursuing wisdom in a crooked crooked world. And when you follow God's design in life under the sun, things may not work out immediately, but they will work out ultimately in Christ. And that's a great comfort for us. So we need to face the realities of life under the sun with wisdom. We need to pursue it and seek to live by it. We see that that wisdom comes to us through Jesus, our Lord. And so several things to unpack there. And um, I pray they've been a benefit and encouragement, something we could glean from those things for our own life.